Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Anxiety is this mostly a feeling that occurs in our body. Um, it's so much more about bodily reactions and a, an emotion. Fear is the same kind of thing, but then worrying is really a thought response. Worrying is when you generate in your mind a lot of potential negative outcomes, thinking this could happen or that could happen or this could happen. And see, we are the descendants of the worried people. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. My name is Poppy Jamie, a recovering perfectionist and the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. Like the app, this show is about hitting pause and taking time to look after our mind and soul. In this series, I explore how we can make life better in 2020. How can we reduce stress, enjoy life, bounce back from setbacks and get in flow? My guests will be sharing their expert advice and I hope you join me on the journey. Our theme music is courtesy of Mindstream. Visit mindstream.com to learn more about how their music and environments help you sleep, relax, focus and move or find their music on any streaming platform. Let's crack on with the show. Welcome to a special episode in light of the corona anxiety that we are all experiencing. As you know, I usually release episodes every Sunday, but I thought it was especially important to make sure I'm creating content that's going to help us right now. I'm interviewing Dr. Pittman today. She's one of the leading experts in stress and anxiety in America. Uh, she's a behavior scientist, clinical psychologist, and the author of Rewire Your Anxious Brain, How to Use the Neuroscience of Fear to End Anxiety, Panic, and Worry. And I know many of you are managing heightened levels of anxiety, and I found that when I actually start understanding what's happening inside, 
is extremely helpful in understanding and processing how I feel and really helps me to then decrease those feelings. I want to apologize in advance for the sound quality of this interview. As you may know, I love being face to face with my interviewees and being in the studio to make sure that you guys have the best experience when listening. But due to social distancing, I've been trying to find the best way to do this um, online. But the content is really interesting and I hope you learn from it and I hope it helps you. Anyway, thinking of you all, my heart goes out to everyone and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm so happy to be here, Poppy, and it's a great opportunity to talk to people about what's going on in the world, too. So Excellent. So what is your favorite quote at the moment? Well, my favorite quote actually comes from something my mother just recently said, but it's, it's an old, well-known kind of quote, and that is that worry is like a rocking chair. It keeps you busy, but it doesn't get you anywhere. So true. <laughs> and how do you break that down? Well, when I when I um, recently heard my mom say it, I said, Mom, you I've never heard you say that before. And it's so appropriate. And she said, well, I have to save some things for you to keep impressing you, you know. Um, and what it really is saying is that worry is something that we can constantly think about our worries. But just thinking about our worries does not help us. So uh, what's the life lesson you've been reminded of recently? Um, I think one of the things, and this this probably could be good for people who are having to uh, stay in their homes, I've really been reminded of the fact that people really want to be listened to. They don't really want to be fixed or helped in a lot of ways. Sometimes they just need someone to listen to them. And so we should really try to listen to each other and just communicate a little better. Sometimes just listening and repeating back, okay, you're feeling this way or you're saying this um, to a person is really helpful. That is so true. And I've actually been reminded of that recently as well. And just to feel heard, I think often is honestly mm-hmm. the most soothing response you could hear. But also in mm-hmm. arguments, it's that kind of often they don't even need to be right. They just need to be heard. Right. You don't have to agree with it. They just want to know you know what they're saying. And and sometimes the other thing, even with kids, you don't have to fix the situation, but it really helps them to know that you understand that they are unhappy or frustrated. And and sometimes that's all they need. They go running back to whatever they were doing. You know? yeah. Just wanted you to say that to them. Yeah, it's amazing how the simplest things make the world a difference. How do you define happiness? Well, I, you know, I'm a psychologist, so I really get into these definitions of things. But I, um, I'd say it's just it's a pleasant feeling that we get when you're in an enjoyable moment, and it really is just a moment by moment experience. And something that you can't cling on to. Mm, no, happiness isn't something that's static. No, it's not. Kind of comes and goes. And that's okay. And I think definitely for me in the last few years, having a greater acceptance that happiness can come and go has really helped me not panic when I then don't think I feel happy. Yeah, because it's it's actually not normal to stay in any emotion for very long. If you get stuck in them, actually, we have to start treating you because you're, you're not supposed to get stuck in emotions, even happiness, you know. We, we, our emotions is one thing you can always believe in. And that is however you're feeling right now, 
it's going to change. It's never going to stay the same. And it may come back, the feeling you're having now, but it, it will always change. That's the nature of emotion. Thanks for sharing that. So you've been speaking about anxiety and worry and helping people understand it for years and mm-hmm. put it this way, it couldn't be more relevant right now in the times mm-hmm. we're in. So I'd love to kind of really dive into, uh, to begin with, what's actually happening in the brain? Would you be able to explain like what anxiety actually is and what it's actually doing? So the first thing you have to kind of recognize about our brain, that anything that's coming into our brain whether it's what we hear or what we see, what we touch, you know, even what you're feeling in the soles of your feet when you're walking on carpet, everything, all those signals coming in from your eyes and ears everywhere goes to a certain part in the center of your brain called the thalamus. It's kind of like a walnut shaped part of our brain. And the thalamus is like Grand Central Station in a way of all these messages coming in and then going out to different places. So this thalamus sends those messages out to the part of the brain that most of us think of as um, our brain, which is the cortex, the biggest part of our brain, the curvy gray part that helps us to process what we see and what we hear, helps us store memories and helps us identify what we feel. So what the thalamus has to do is it has to send information Um, From the eyes to the back of the head where it gets where that information gets processed from the ears to kind of the center part of the brain um, behind your temples where it gets processed. So the thalamus is sending information all out to wherever it needs to go. And that allows you to see things and hear things and experience things and put it all together. Well, the same time the thalamus does that, it also sends the same information that it's getting before it's processed by any part of the brain. It sends it to another part of the brain that few people know about, but we're introducing more and more people to this part of the brain called the amygdala. And the thalamus sends this information to the amygdala. It's really close to the thalamus. They're both kind of in the center part of the brain. So it gets to the amygdala very quickly before it actually gets to the other parts of the brain. So basically we have the information coming in from whatever you hear or see goes to two different places at the same time. The amygdala, which evaluates it to see if it's a relevant thing, it's important, is it something good, is it something bad, and also to the other parts of your brain that allow you to experience it. Now, here's a secret that you should keep in mind. The amygdala knows what you're seeing before you do. Now, that seems kind of weird, but the information gets to it before it gets processed by your brain so that you can understand it. So when you hear something or see something, the amygdala has already had a chance to check that out. Now, one thing the amygdala doesn't get, the detailed process information that your cortex can give. So the amygdala doesn't have the whole picture of it, but it has enough usually to know if this is something that smells good, is something you want to eat or and um, you wanna move toward it, or if it's something that looks scary and you wanna back away from it. And so why am I talking about the amygdala? Because it's the amygdala that creates anxiety, the experience of anxiety. It's the amygdala that creates the experience of fear. It's the amygdala that creates the fight or flight response where we feel like running away or hiding or hitting somebody. Um, It's the amygdala that does that. So when you have this experience of something that is, and we're not going to talk about the pleasant stuff because no one comes into my office saying, I need some help with all the pleasant things in my life. They come in saying, I need help with things that scare me. I need help with things that I'm anxious about. 
So when you are talking about that, the amygdala is always creating a certain response in our body called the stress response. Um, for example, makes your heart pound. It also stops your digestive processes and redirects blood to your extremities so you can you can fight or you can run away. It also kind of interrupts your thinking processes a little. It can kind of hijack your brain and make you think about other things. It does a whole lot of things, pumps adrenaline into your system. It even releases glucose into your bloodstream. I mean, all these things can happen in a fraction of a second. And remember, you have not even yet really seen what the amygdala starts to react to. Can you imagine that? So first of all, the first thing we have to say is you are not in control of this reaction. It can happen without you even seeing completely or hearing completely what is going on. Wow. So there's these two pathways in the brain we have to be aware of, the cortex pathway and the amygdala pathway. And anxiety can occur in either of these two pathways. So first of all, let's talk about anxiety in the amygdala pathway. That's just if, let's say you're, you're at the supermarket and someone comes up behind you and says, hey, you like jump out of your skin kind of, right? That is the amygdala reacting to a loud noise that it's interpreting as a potential threat. It doesn't know what it was yet, but it puts you on alert. Your heart starts pounding. You feel ready to run, or maybe you're going to turn around and hit the person or what, you know, like something's happening. But then let's talk about the, the cortex pathway too, okay? Because what happens too is eventually that information, just in a fraction of a second more, gets to your cortex and that hay gets processed. And you, and also you're you're turn you're spinning around to see what it is you're dealing with, and you see somebody who's an old friend who's saying, "Poppy, I haven't seen you in years," and immediately your cortex is getting this information, and the cortex interprets this and says, "This is a safe situation," and then the amygdala reacts to the cortex because the amygdala is watching what's going on in the cortex. I kind of talk about it like the cortex is like a television that the amygdala is sitting there watching. So when when the cortex interprets this as you know person from your school that you once knew, da da da, you know, and then the amygdala interprets that. It doesn't go away immediately. Things have happened that you can't turn off. Like adrenaline has been released, your heart is pounding, your stomach has kind of been shut down. So there's still a kind of a lingering feeling. And often people misinterpret this where they say, if I'm safe, why do I still feel this way? Mm. You know? Is that a bit like so social anxiety? And then also, also, I'd love to hear what is happening in our brain in this current anxiety where you're kind of worried mm -hmm. about, let's say, Corona. How does that right. differ? Well, now the amygdala doesn't know anything about Corona. The amygdala, when you say Corona right now, the amygdala doesn't react. Now, so what's reacting? It must be our cortex because we've been seeing things on television and hearing on the radio and your friends are talking about it. And as we're having information about this in our cortex and what people are telling us, then go back to that kind of cortex television. The amygdala is getting information not only from the thalamus, but the amygdala gets information from the cortex, which is good, which is good. Mm 
because sometimes the amygdala misses information and it doesn't see a danger. So as you are thinking about things, like maybe you're thinking about getting sick, maybe you're thinking about you personally being very ill or hospitalized or even dying and you're having all these images in your head, the amygdala is going to react to those images you have in your mind. So if you sit 24-7 and watch the television and hear all these things all the time, your amygdala is being flooded with all these scary images. And especially, let's say, and it doesn't have to even be anything that you're seeing. You can be all alone, in the dark, in your bed at night. You're not seeing anything, but you're lying there. And you know what you're doing? You're thinking about maybe your grandmother dying. You're thinking about the sweet little old lady next door and wondering if you should even talk to her because you might make her sick if you have the virus. And so as you start thinking about all these things, even though you're perfectly safe in your bed, not sick, nothing, the amygdala is watching cortex television, say. The amygdala is reacting to what goes on in our cortex. And so you're getting the amygdala all stirred up when you are perfectly safe in that moment. There's nothing. So we have two pathways here. The, the cortex pathway is when to anxiety. The cortex pathway to anxiety is when the cortex produces images or thoughts that we could say scare the amygdala. And then there's the direct amygdala pathway, which is when the amygdala reacts to images and um, experiences, sounds, sights from the real world. And that's the one that it can react before the cortex. So we have to be aware of both of these pathways because you need to be able to know how do I calm down my amygdala? You know, how do I keep my cortex from igniting the amygdala or activating the amygdala or scaring the amygdala? How do I keep my cortex from doing that? So just to clarify, anxiety is essentially the name for chemical reactions. It's basically the name for what we feel and some of the thoughts, because anxiety sometimes is, includes thoughts, but it's more of the feeling and the bodily reaction that we would call the stress response that's in all animals, your dogs, your cats, even horses, which will jump back if they hear a loud noise. Um, they have amygdalas. And this stress response, which is the fight or flight response that causes us to uh, run away if we're in danger. Here's how the amygdala thinks. If there's a danger, run. Okay. And I'm sure some of us have said, oh, I felt that just before an exam. I felt that. <laughs> like I want to run the other direction. The other thing is fight. You need to fight off an attacker. And then there's another thing the amygdala does, which is it produces a freeze response where we just feel kind of locked up like, ah, uh, I don't know what to do. You're kind of just frozen. And this, this response has saved a lot of animals including humans, where we stay very still and don't move and we a predator doesn't harm us. And, you know, right. So fight, flight, freeze. But here's the problem. Look at our world. Mm. You know, let's say you have to stay home. You you can't earn money right now. So you have to stay home taking care of your kid or whatever. And how are you going to pay your bills? The amygdala is going to react to that by saying, run, fight, freeze. You know, those are its answers. Now, that's not helpful. Now, luckily, there's more parts to our brain than the amygdala that can help us. But when we're feeling threatened, those are the things that our amygdala naturally creates. So that's why we'll have this feeling. And if you kind of break it down, you'll see your heart is pounding. You have a sense of dread. You know, you have dry mouth. You can tremble. All of these are related to that fight or flight or stress response. 
So anxiety and fear and the stress response, they're all kind of a similar process going on in our body. The difference between anxiety and fear is anxiety is when it's harder to point to what we're exactly afraid of because there's not a real danger you're looking at. But fear is when we're like, oh, sure, there's the thing you're afraid of. One of the myths we need to deal with is that when you feel anxiety, it feels like there is a danger and it feels like it's a terrible feeling. Don't ever act like it's, I never act like it, but it can be completely wrong. And people tend to trust it. So that's one of the myths I think people need to deal with. You can feel, and there's going to be millions of people right now, for example, feeling that the coronavirus is going to have a negative impact in, in their life in, in some disastrous, heart-wrenching way. Now, it's had effects on a lot of our lives, obviously, across the whole world, which is kind of amazing. We're all kind of dealing with this. But one of the things that we have to remember, though, is a lot of people are going to get through this without any serious, terrible things happening in their life. Now, not everybody, you know, but the thing is, you can feel anxiety and it can be completely wrong. I don't know. Have do you remember when you were in school? Did you ever really have a lot of anxiety before an exam? And then you got a fine grade on the exam. All the time. <laughs> right. So lots of anxiety, but no reason that for it, you know? And so we need to remember that anxiety does not predict correctly. You know, you can be very anxious before you get on a plane and then land safely in London and say, well, why did I go through all that? There was nothing I needed to feel so anxious about. And what do you mean when you say consider what you're thinking to change your emotions? This is a very good one for us in this particular situation. If you want to change your emotions, you know, if you tell yourself, calm down, calm down, relax, relax, calm down, that does nothing for the amygdala, especially if you are thinking a lot of very negative thoughts. If you're thinking, how am I going to pay my bills? If you're thinking, um, how is my family going to be affected? You know, if you're worrying about things. It's what you think that you can change much more easily than what you feel. But remember with this whole idea that what goes on in our cortex doesn't stay in our cortex. What goes on in our cortex affects the amygdala. So if you are generating thoughts about people being sick, you're generating thoughts about not being able to pay your mortgage, you're generating thoughts, you know, about that. The amygdala is being affected by those thoughts. If you take a break and watch a show that makes you laugh, takes your mind off it, gives the amygdala a break too, right? So you don't want your amygdala constantly soaking in these negative thoughts. So that's why I say consider what you're thinking about because that can change your feelings. I love this idea of cortex television. It's yeah, cortex television. Yeah, I know. Just think about it. How many channels do you have in your brain? Like I have 500 channels, I swear, on my television, but my brain, you know, there's just billions of channels I can be on. I mean, I can be on the Plan My Garden channel. I can be on the Read My Book channel. I can be on the Think of Funny Jokes to Tell My Students channel. You know, I can be on all kinds of Plan My Grocery List channel. There's just so many channels you can be on. But you know what? Some people, and you might be one of these, Poppy. Some people like to stay on the worry channel. It's like their favorite channel and they watch it constantly. I'm like, get off the worry channel. That is not a good, can we move to the landscape channel or can, can we, can we move to um, just, you know, the call your mom and talk about 
your childhood memories channel. You know, I don't, I mean, but you can do so many things in your brain, but people feel locked in sometimes to certain channels. What's the difference between anxiety and over-worrying or are they Okay, they're just worrying, yeah. Okay, so let's, anxiety, remember, is this mostly a feeling that occurs in our body. Um, it's so much more about bodily reactions and a, an emotion, right? Um, fear is the same kind of thing. We kind of talked about the difference there. But then worrying is really a thought response. Worrying, here's what I would define worrying as. And I bet you're going to say, I'm good at that. I can do that, you know? Okay, worrying is when you generate in your mind a lot of potential negative outcomes, a lot of potential negative scenarios, thinking this could happen or that could happen or this could happen. And see, we are the descendants of the worried people. Let's take like a woman who is one of our ancient ancestors and she built her little hut right next to this this river because it was a great place because, you know, she could get fish and crayfish and out of the river she could get um, water from it. She could dunk her kids in it when they were dirty. I mean, she's like, this is a great place to live. But one day it's raining, raining, raining. And this woman, she imagines the river gets so big and wide that it washes away her little hut. Right. And so she's worrying. But that does not save this woman from anything. What what saves her is that she also has another set of circuits in the frontal part of her brain called planning circuits. This is where we come up with ideas about what we could do, you know, to plan uh, behaviors that we can do and, and to organize things. And this is how we've learned to plant things and hunt things and work together with each other and built skyscrapers and gone to the moon. I mean, it takes a lot of planning and we humans got planning circuits. But this is what you're supposed to do. If you're worrying, that's just a signal to you that you need, you have a potential problem and you need to move on to planning. Right. So what that woman did, the prehistoric woman, is she came up with a plan. She said, I'm going to take everything out of my hut. I'm going to drag it up that hill. I'm going to build a hut up there and move my kids and everything up there. And that's what I'm going to do. And that saved that woman's life. And so here's how you need to use it. I tell people, write this down, you know, so get a pen and a paper. It's very simple. You just write down worry. And then you draw next to worry a little arrow going off to the right, pointing to the right. And what is it going to point to? What do you need to do? Plan. plan. So then you write down plan. And then after plan, you know what you do? You draw another little arrow, which points off. And you know what that points off to? Nothing. It says move on. It shows just move on from there. You know, it doesn't even have to be action because sometimes you're not going to need the plan. You just have to have it. So like sometimes you just need to have the plan. Like, for example, you can say, if I get coronavirus, what will I do? But you don't take any action until you get it. On the other hand, there's some things like I need to wash my hands more frequently. That's something you act on, you know. But here's the thing that people do sometimes. A lot of people just keep worrying and worrying and worrying and worrying. They don't know that this is really about signaling to you, I need a plan. That planning is what we should be doing right now. Not just sticking and worrying, but some people just go around and around spinning and worry and never move on to anything. They just generate all these negative thoughts about what could happen, this could happen, that could happen, this could happen, that could happen, you know, and they never go on to a plan. And they're just soaking their amygdala in negative images and thoughts. And their amygdala is like, oh my God, you know, but the point of worry is to signal to you that you have a problem and you need to come up with a plan. Sometimes you'll use the plan. Sometimes you won't use the plan. 
Now, once you come up with that plan, here's the trick. You need to move on with your day, with your life. Keep that plan in mind. You can even write it down if you want to write it down. Like, here's my plan. This is what I'll do. But you move on. You don't go back to worry. This is another thing people do. They go, okay, now I got my plan. I'm going to go back to my regularly scheduled worry. No, worry has fulfilled its purpose. You know, you do things to deal with your worries and you move on and you can't just soak in them. I would love to know any different approaches um, that you can share for helping manage anxiety better. Okay, well, some of these things are going to really surprise people, okay? Because some of these things that we can do to help manage worry and, and anxiety both go back to the amygdala. Here's some things that you can do. When you get poor sleep or sleep that's interrupted by more than, you know, like 10 or so minutes so that you're getting up and you're having broken sleep, it really affects your amygdala. And we've discovered this by looking at what happens in the amygdala after people are deliberately kept from sleeping or have woken up during the night to have, we find out their amygdala is much more reactive to things than when they have decent sleep. In particular, it's a certain kind of sleep called REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. And this is the kind of sleep you get only when you've gotten an extended period of sleep. So if you make sure that you sleep for seven, eight, nine hours, you're getting a lot of rich REM sleep in those last two hours that you don't get in the first three hours of your sleep. So lack of sleep can make you much more anxious. Lack of sleep can create more stress reactions in people. So one thing you need to do is you need to get yourself more sleep. And some people just don't believe sleep is important. They just, especially, I don't know how it is there, but in America, we're kind of like, sleep's good if you can get it, but don't worry too much about it. No, your amygdala will react completely differently when you get decent sleep regularly. I know people who have been sleeping well, sleeping well, and they've been doing really well. And they say, I haven't had a panic attack in, you know, so long. And panic attack is really one of those stress reactions that happens when there's no good reason. You just have a big panic and it's the fight or flight response, but no, no good, good reason for you to really run away or fight someone or, you know. So when people have that, it's so funny. I'll be talking to clients And they'll say, oh, my gosh, I had a panic attack and I'd gone so long without one. I don't know why. And I'll say, how have you been sleeping? They say, oh, shoot, especially if you're kind of predisposed to panic or if you have what I would say more. People can be born with we can see it early on in life. Some kids have more reactive amygdalas than others. We can see differences in in people's amygdalas from the time they're little. But the good news is we can change our amygdalas as we get older we can actually train our amygdalas to act differently. That's why very shy people who would say, I was just a very shy child, end up being able to get up and perform and sing songs in front of millions of people. How do we train? How do we start to train our amygdala? Well, the main thing is you do the things that you want to be able to do. You push through the anxiety. And remember, a lot of times the amygdala is is uh, wrong about this being frightening. Is this what's called exposure therapy? It's called exposure therapy, right? When you, if you're afraid of riding in the car after a car accident, you have to expose yourself to get back in cars and eventually drive. And your amygdala will learn from that and change. A lot of people feel like I'm afraid now, I can't do it anymore. 
But the amygdala will get over fears, but it doesn't get over by anything that we say to it. The amygdala does not learn by me lecturing to it or to, like your amygdala is learning nothing from anything I'm telling you right now. <laughs> the only way your amygdala learns is by giving it experiences to learn from. So it needs to learn being in a car can be safe, that I can be in a car. Now they have to, it has to happen without anything negative happening. Like let's say someone was knocked down by a dog when they're a child and they're avoiding dogs for years. We can get them over fear of dogs, but it involves them being around a dog and it involves nothing negative happening when they're around a dog, only positive or neutral things. So when we do exposure therapy, we put people through situations that usually elicit anxiety or that usually we could say activate the amygdala. But what we're doing is we're showing the amygdala, look, nothing bad's going to happen. And it really surprises people how quickly the amygdala gets it. They think I'm going to have to sit here in this car and go through a huge panic. But often it's like three minutes of their heart pounding and them feeling anxious. And then they say, I'm starting to feel calm. I said, see, the amygdala learns. It, it notices when, oh, I was wrong. I, this, is, this isn't dangerous, but you have to show it. It will not learn from lectures or, or reassurance. You can't tell someone, calm down, it's going to be all right. And so how do you try and reduce cortex television? Like how do you reduce, for example, because it sounds like right now we are experiencing quite a lot of cortex television anxiety because we're running through worst case scenarios of yes. coronavirus. What are right. strategies to reduce that? Okay, so let me just backtrack just a little and say one of the clearest things we want to do is calm the amygdala down so that it's not already kind of up. So, so let's say you're trying to get good sleep which you didn't even know affected your amygdala, but now you know. So, okay, I'm going to get good sleep for my amygdala, so it'll be calmer. The other thing that you can do with your amygdala is, like I said, talking to it doesn't help, but do you know deep breathing can actually calm down the amygdala? Really? Isn't that wild? It, can, it works faster than Xanax. Really? It, it does. If you do this deep diaphragmatic breathing, we can watch your amygdala in real time on an fMRI, you know, those where we scan the brain, we can watch it calm down in a matter of minutes before you can even process through your system, the Xanax you took, you can do some deep breathing. Another thing, guess what else really quickly reduces amygdala activation in, in the body reaction, exercise. So this is the craziest thing because people say this isn't logical, but let me tell you a little secret. The amygdala is not logical. So don't <laughs> think logic is the, logic won't work on the amygdala. If you tell it, you know, this isn't logical. That doesn't do a thing. You can reason with it. doesn't do a thing. But if you are feeling really stressed and you go for a run, your amygdala will calm down. Why? Because it's set up to do the fight or flight reaction. So when you run, it's like, oh, good, we got away. Isn't that an odd thing? That's amazing. But then you can do all that, keep your amygdala calm, and your cortex can go and present scary movies to the amygdala, which undoes everything you're doing. What do you do for your cortex? Going back to your question, cortex television. Well, you got to watch the right channels, you know? You don't want to stay on the coronavirus channel all day. You don't want to stay on the... Um, my finances are in disarray channel. So you have to think to yourself, I need to take some control. 
of my cortex. But I'll tell you something, you know, what won't work is telling yourself, don't think about the coronavirus. Don't think about the fact I can't, because if I ask you to not think about anything, like if I say, don't think about pink elephants, Poppy, what do you do? Pink elephants. You're thinking pink elephants, aren't you? Because you can't activate parts of your cortex to deactivate them. I can't tell you to stop thinking about something without activating that part of your brain that holds that memory. Right. So, you know, you have to really think about it, like changing a channel. You have to say, what am I going to think about? What am I going to do? What should I be focused on? I suppose it's even more important because right now, and I would love your thoughts on this, is anxiety contagious? Because I definitely feel more stressful because everybody around me seems to be more stressed. Well, just think of it like this. You're going about your day and you're trying to be on your little channels, right? And when you come in contact with another person, you kind of start watching the channel they're watching because they start talking to you about what's going on in their brain and what's happening, you know? And so now you switch to this channel that was influenced by this other person. So other people are going to influence what you think about. And that isn't a contagion in, in, you know, the sense of, you know, catching a virus. It's a contagion in terms of catching a channel of thinking. You know, you're, you're, you start sharing the same channel. And they bring up things you haven't even thought about, you know, sometimes. You're like, oh, now you've given me a new thing to worry about. And, but the truth is, you have to remember, what is worry about? And, you know, just kind of keep explaining it to people. You know, we're not supposed to keep worrying. We're supposed to come up with plans. Do you have a plan? And once we have a plan, we're supposed to realize we're going to be okay with that plan. If we need it, we'll, we'll implement it. Or we are implementing this plan, whichever kind of plan we're talking about. And if someone says, well, I have a plan, like what if my grandma dies? And you say, well, let's sit down and what are you going to do if, if that happens? What needs to be done? And really just come up with a plan. And then you say, now you're ready. But, you know, it's probably never going to happen, but you're ready. And now you need to stop worrying about it because you have your plan. How um, do anti-anxiety medication, like what's your thought on that in treating anxiety? Okay, so there's different kinds of anxiety medications. And I want to talk about one that is really important to be aware of. And those are the benzodiazepines. And the reason you need to be aware of them is because they feel like they're doing a really helpful thing, but they're not doing a helpful thing in the long run. So this is Xanax? Like Xanax, Clonopin, Clonazepam, um, Valium. Um, Okay. So now what they do is they're sedatives and just to make it really simple, because not everybody knows about how the brain operates and neurons and all that, but they basically kind of put parts of your brain and body to sleep. They are intended to shut down parts of your brain and your body and other parts of your body. They operate on GABA receptors, which are all over in your whole body. So they don't just affect your brain. But one of the things they do for anxiety is sedate or put the amygdala to sleep. They sedate the amygdala. So in other words, what do we have? We have an amygdala that goes to sleep. And what does that mean? Fear, anxiety is going to go away. So people will say, if I take this medicine, I can get on the plane. You know, if I 
take this medicine. I can talk to people, you know, but the thing is you haven't changed your amygdala in any permanent way. You haven't taught it getting on a plane is safe. You haven't taught it talking to people you don't know is safe. You have put it to sleep so you can do things without it kind of noticing because it's just there snoring kind of, you know, so you haven't fixed the problem in your brain. You haven't taught your amygdala anything, but you've put it out of commission. Well, there's a couple of things that are, are a problem. If you do that every once in a while, not daily, I'm not too worried about it. So if every time you have to get on a plane, you've just decided you're going to take benzodiazepines and you're not on a plane very often. Okay. But if you start taking this every day, and this can happen easily to people who are dealing with a lot of anxiety and chronic anxiety or chronic worry. If you start doing it every day, your amygdala is not going to just stay the same. What it does is it starts to fight back. It starts to strengthen itself. And so what happens is you end up with an amygdala that makes a stronger response. So suddenly you'll say, my anxiety feels like it's coming back and I need more of this medication. I'm going to take more of this medication. So you make more, take more of it. And then you're, ah, this is better. This is how it used to be. But then the amygdala gets even stronger. So what happens is when you're not taking it, like let's say now you want to try to get off it, you are going to have more anxiety than you ever had in your life because you have created an amygdala that is stronger than it used to be. And it produces stronger reactions. Because it thinks it's protecting you. It's like, we've got to speak up louder and tell her that she's in Exactly, danger. exactly. Because it's saying this is a life or death situation. If, if I let you shut me down, this person is vulnerable. I have to be able to produce this fight or flight response, you know, and if people are interested, they should check out Benzo Buddies because there are a whole lot of people in the world, especially in the United States, who are addicted to benzodiazepines, not because they did anything wrong. And I shouldn't really say addicted. That's a bad word. Their brain has gotten used to them having benzodiazepines. This isn't something they did exactly what their doctors told them. Their brain just got used to them being in there and the amygdala had to get stronger and stronger, but now they have a different amygdala than they once had. There's this whole neurological change that happened that we call addiction and people act like it's some kind of a problem that the person had, but it's actually a physiological process that goes on in your brain. So you would highly recommend um, for any of us experiencing and kind of anxiety and worrying to stick to things that you can practice like mindfulness sleeping sleeping exercise all those things and if you really do need some help beyond that you can go talk to a doctor and there are medications called ssris and snris that are often used for depression and other kinds of disorders but what those medications do they do not result in the kind of changes that the benzodiazepines do they do something completely different what they do is they make your brain more flexible so you can change things. Like you can teach the amygdala new things. You can teach your cortex new things. They're not trying to sedate the brain. In fact, the sad thing is when you first start taking them, they increase your anxiety often. And right away, people will be like, this is not what I need. It's making things worse. And so people really need to understand that they may cause a temporary increase in anxiety. You got to push through that seven to 10 days. And then often you start feeling, I'm more able to shift my thoughts. Like if someone's saying, I really want to stop worrying, but all I do is worry. I'm stuck on it. I think really the more it seems that one of the main points here is nothing is going to do the work, but you 
in the long term. Like we all have a responsibility to take action, to learn how to manage our mind through these tips that you've shared. Right. It's really, we can rewire the brain. We can teach the brain all kinds of new things, but it, it won't, there's no medicine developed that will change um, the wiring in the brain without us doing something to help rewiring change. You know, it can help us. It can make the brain more flexible, like more open to it. But just like when you fertilize your yard, if you go out there and spread fertilizer in your whole yard, you're going to be fertilizing the weeds as well as the grass, as well as the flowers. And you have to kind of be picking the weeds out. What thoughts do I want to have? You have to be making sure you water the flowers you want to grow, pull out the crabgrass, the dandelions. We don't want those. You know, you have to kind of do the same thing in your brain. You have to say, what thoughts do I want? And how someone teach me how to change my thoughts because it's not easy. You can't just say, I want to change my thoughts. We've already talked about, you can't just tell yourself to stop thinking. The rule in the in the cortex is you can't erase, you must replace. So don't tell yourself, don't think it, don't think it, because you won't erase it. You have to say, what else am I going to think about? I think that's such a brilliant share. So um, if you wouldn't mind finishing the sentence um, as we end this exceedingly interesting, incredibly insightful interview. The first thing in the morning, I... I would say the first thing in the morning, I have a brain that is um, starts thinking about what I have to do. And I, it just does that. And I have to really keep myself focused on things that I want to think about. Because your brain just does stuff. Before I go to sleep, I... I have to move my little dog off my pillow because she is there. <laughs> best piece of advice I've been given is Um, the secret to happiness is to want what you have the book I recommend the most is Um, actually it's not even about anxiety but um, Deborah Tannen who's a psycholinguistics wrote a book called you just don't understand that's about men and women's communication differences really helpful for relationships Oh, really? Just quickly dive into that because that's just so interesting. Like, what's the synopsis? We'll go read the book. Well, what it is, is that men and women learn completely different ways of communicating and we don't know what the other one is talking about. This is learned. It's not, that's something you inherit. But my, this book was written 20 years ago and my students in college tell me it's so helpful for their relationships. It's still occurring. Even though, okay, well, yes, wow, Deborah Tannen, Deborah Tannen. Yeah, run out to buy that. <laughs> um, when I feel insecure, I don't say much at all. Better, better not say much. <laughs> As I've gotten older, I've realized you need to make time for yourself and uh, you need to make time for enjoying life. If you really knew me, you would know that I love teaching more than anything else. So this has been so fun getting to teach new information. I can't express to you how much I've enjoyed this chat and just I've, my stress levels have gone right down. Um, Oh, yeah. So I feel so much more relaxed. Again, just learning about the brain and the way you teach it is just so brilliant. Very quickly, how do we find you and um, and how do we buy your brilliant book? Well, the book is Rewire Your Anxious Brain. 
and it's by um, New Harbinger. You can get it on Amazon. Just rewire your anxious brain is all you need, Catherine Pittman. And you can you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm um, at Dr. C. M. Pittman. My name, Catherine Marie, Dr. C. M. Pittman on Instagram and Twitter. And I will include all of those details in the show notes for anyone who wants quick links. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Of course, it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast. You can find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram. DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.